0: Minutes from Latvia with Mike
1: Collier. So, welcome to Minutes from Latvia. This is a a new project we have, um, a podcast in which we'll just be taking part in a little bit of brief discussion, rounding up a few of the events of current import happening in our favorite Baltic state. And each week that we do it, I'll be joined by a guest. And I'm pleased to say that the first guest on the first podcast is uh, someone I've known for A few years here in Latvia, Daunis Hours, an academic and researcher. Welcome to Minutes from Latvia, Daunis. Hi, Mike. I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) And we'll just be talking a little bit about a couple of topics and then moving on to a discussion of uh, your... Well, a discussion that's of particular interest to you, namely higher education in Latvia, if that's okay. So, to begin with, well, what have we been having happening in Latvia this week? Uh, A bit of good news in that we've won some gold medals at last. I don't know if you were watching the Olympics, Dallas, but we didn't manage to win any in the, well, regular Olympics. But in the Paralympics, we've already got three in the bag. So uh, the country's getting a bit of a lift from that. Is that something that you've noticed, that people are a bit more positive about sport than they were two weeks ago? Uh, no, I don't think uh, that people are necessarily much more positive about
0: sport. I mean, I mean, Latvia, I think, has a long and distinguished uh, history of, uh, I wouldn't say quite sporting failure, but not being terribly successful at sports. But we, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Latvia is a country of uh, two million people, and it performs at a very appropriate level for uh, two million people. I mean, this is a first time in uh, our history, I believe, at the Olympics, that we haven't won any gold medals. And if you actually look at the uh, uh, other countries with a similar population to Latvia, they typically have no gold medals at Olympics. So we've actually been overperforming for a long time.
1: And Well, in a a curious way, it seems to me that the fact that Latvia didn't win any gold medals this time around has given a little bit of extra impetus to the Paralympic medals that we've won. People seem genuinely uh, pleased. There's a a great deal of respect for people like Aigas Apinits, who's won four gold medals now at the Paralympics. And maybe that's something that in countries with what we might say a broader sporting tradition or whether you expect to win lots of medals that doesn't really happen they don't get the same attention to the Paralympic athletes
0: yeah I mean I think absolutely Uh, a lot of attention has been focused on the Paralympics this time and I think we're beginning to recognize that uh, Dion and Dazit and and Apinitz as you mentioned they are truly outstanding athletes I mean four Olympic gold gold, uh, medals for IGOTS is is wonderful and I think actually the uh, Olympic committee in Latvia could learn a lot from the success of uh, our medalists at the Paralympics because they've been winning medals in the uh, the technical sports or, or the uh, throwing events, as <laughs> some people may describe it. Um, so the javelin, uh, the discus uh, and the shot put. And this is an area where Latvia has a long history, um, especially when it comes to the javelin in the Olympics. Um, and perhaps the Latin Olympic Committee, rather than spreading the money sort of very widely on a wide multiplicity of sports, they should focus on the stuff that we're actually quite good at. And that means uh, in terms of the Summer Olympics, for example, focusing on these more technical uh, uh, field events, and also, of course, focusing perhaps more on the Winter Olympics than the Summer Olympics, um, particularly uh, the Latvian hockey team, but also, of course, our boys uh, on the uh, luge and in the uh, bobsled.
1: But that's quite interesting in that the you know technical events, as you describe them, They're pretty simple. I mean, it is as simple as throwing things. Okay, you need a javelin, you need a discus, you need a a shot to put. But they're things which people can conceivably do. They can try. They don't need to invest a lot of money in. It's an interesting contrast with the Winter Olympics where, you know, you can't just grab your luge and go down a St. Moritz run or anything. So maybe this idea of prioritizing is, well, it's going to tie in with something we're going to talk about next. But uh, do you think that's something that in Latvia, we often tend to hear, this is a priority, that's a priority. But when you add them all up, they all seem to be priorities. and, Mm -hmm. And we need to kind of prioritize the priorities.
0: Yeah, uh, but I mean, I think there are certain sporting events where, I mean, you can simply take a look and see that we haven't been doing terribly well in them. And it might be a little bit harsh to say that we don't give money to this. But I think we have to accept the the, the fact that, first of all, Latvia is a uh, not amongst the wealthiest countries in the European Union, quite the reverse. We are sort of towards the bottom. Moreover, um, our government budget is much smaller than that of comparative states because uh, our take... Uh, so, uh, other, in other words, the government's um, share of GDP, as expressed by budget, is smaller than in other countries. And that means we just don't have the money to spread around everywhere. Um, and there is this tendency in sports, much as there is in the benefit system, for example, to spread money around everywhere, rather than perhaps focusing on where it would be best, best be served. So I think that um, it, when you have a budget of a type of Latvia's rather than a budget like uh, you know, the Netherlands or Denmark's, then actually you do have to prioritize. If you want to achieve sporting success, then you have to realize we can't do everything, but we should do the things that we, we're already doing well. We should try to focus on doing those even better.
1: And uh, s- uh, speaking of prioritizing sporting success, something else which has caused a bit of a stir in quite a few international headlines concerning Latvia recently, has been uh, our finance minister, Dana Reznieta taking two weeks holiday to go to Baku and play in the World Chess Olympiad. Now, there have been sort of two reactions to this. One is that, well, isn't it um, kind of disgraceful that some, a high official can take this time off, miss important EU meetings? The other is, well, she managed to beat the world ranked number one player while she was there. And this has actually, raised the profile not only of chess but of Latvia around the world. I mean, what's your take on this? It seems a fairly unusual uh, sort of set of circumstances for a finance minister to be playing in the World Chess Championships rather than sitting in a boring meeting in uh, Mm -hmm. Bratislava.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that what we have to remember is that politicians are people. Um, And, I mean, this is why we have this huge populist surge in North America and all across Europe at the moment, that uh, the public are tired of politicians being seen as some kind of sort of uber class who make decisions and and create policies which seem to be sort of distanced from the public. Um, And and this is why the new generation of politicians like Nigel Farage in the UK (laughs) and bizarrely enough also Donald Trump um, in America present themselves as sort of normal people almost, you know, uh, sort of champions of the people. And they're crying out for this kind of thing. And and ultimately, what the finance minister did is what a, you know every normal person does. She took a holiday that's fantastic. She took a holiday. And moreover, it wasn't a sort of the booze cruise or something like this. I mean, she actually spent a lot of constructive time, uh, you know, competing on the Latvian team at this uh, chess event. So, I mean, I think it's wonderful. I, I'm not sure that the meetings she actually missed uh, were some kind of, you know, make or break type uh, meetings. When, when you hold a high position like a prime minister or a, a government minister, there will always be meetings. Every week there will be some kind of meeting uh, going on, w- w- which it would be good to attend. But it's some point, you surely have to have a holiday. You should uh, take a, a, a break. So, I mean, personally, I, I don't see a problem here. I mean, we had a, a similar thing this weekend, when um, it turned out that the prime minister had flown to uh, Germany to meet uh, the German chancellor on Ryanair, and some people sort of expressed the you know were horrified by this, you know, not flying on the national airline, you know, flying on Ryanair, which is sort of seen as not being perhaps the most sort of luxurious type of travel. But on the other hand, I mean, most of us in the real world, well, perhaps not you, Mike, but certainly me. (laughs) I mean, I I, I typically fly Ryanair to the UK because it uh, flies at the best times and gives the best uh, bang for the buck, as it
1: were. So, I mean, I think these kind of things are are really to be applauded. Well, I like to to think I'm more of a whiz-air kind of guy, (laughs) really, Downis. um, So what you're saying, really, Downis, is that playing chess is a, a humanizing action. It's showing that this is a real person with a real life rather than one of these masters of the universe, which I must admit media plays into depicting people in high office as these sorts of uh, epic figures when it's actually quite nice sometimes to see that they have a hobby or that they have an interest which is, you know, as consuming as their political career. And, of course, that they have emotions. I mean, there's the (laughs) wonderful
0: picture of the moment that uh, she sort of realized that she'd beaten the uh, Chinese, uh, you you know, the uh, the number one chess player in the world in this moment of sort of undiluted delight. I mean, I think it was rather wonderful. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier.
1: So we were mentioning priorities a few uh, moments ago. We're getting a sort of grand list of priorities today, courtesy of uh, Mr. Jean-Claude Juncker, who's delivering his uh, State of the Union address. Well, in fact, I was looking at YouTube last night and much to my surprise, an advert popped up and immediately played me uh, a preview of Juncker's speech complete with dramatic music, fast cuts of people like Nigel Farage, uh, all looking very, very serious as this was a great moment of uh, continental import. Is that what it is? Um, because it seems that if ever there was a time for Juncker to sort of, deliver a speech that mattered it's now with quite a few different crises raging in Europe. Well I mean in a sense this is the uh,
0: continuing Americanization of European politics, which we've seen over the last fifty years in various different dimensions, and of course, it's also related to the ultimate ambition of creating a sort of United States of Europe, a more federal Europe. That's why we have this sort of grand set piece occasion, which, of course, previously didn't exist. Um, previous presidents of the Commission never had a moment where they could sort of advertise, you know, that this is my day, you know, I, I'm, at this, you know I, I'm at the, you know, I'm at the centre of a world. So Juncker has quite shamelessly, in a sense, uh, created this through the uh, through this extreme. Publicity for the, uh, for the uh, State of the Union. I mean, as for, you know, whether he needs to deliver or not, I mean, I, I'm a little more skeptical than you about this, Mike. I mean, I've been teaching European politics for, well, European Union politics specifically for almost 20 years now. And every year that I've been teaching it, uh, Europe has been in crisis. Um, uh, Europe is sort of perpetually in crisis mode. It seems to be an instrument that politicians use to make sure that we're driving forwards rather than backwards. You know, there are always some kind of enemies that we have to defeat and we should be moving forward. Now, of course, this year there are perhaps more substantial reasons to, to, to think there is a crisis than not. Um, there is the uh, refugee crisis that began last year. We have uh, Brexit. Uh, we have the continuing issue of uh, long-term Economic um, stagnation, which I think European politicians are becoming increasingly concerned about. Because after the years of a crisis, we were perfectly happy with relatively low rates of growth. But those low rates of growth have now carried over for, you know, coming on for a decade. And last week, of course, uh, the growth figures in Latvia, or rather the Bank of Latvia estimate, was downgraded to uh, 1.4%, I think. Yeah, 1.4%, which is almost uh, half uh, what the bank had originally predicted at the start of the year. So, you know, all this, in a sense, is, is rather worrying. So, certainly, Juncker... Has to say something. But at the same time, we have to remember this isn't like a a US president's um, state of a nation where he can actually set policy direction. Um, Juncker is, uh, for Juncker, it's much more difficult to set this policy direction because there are so many more actors at play. Uh, There are the 28 uh, member states which also influence decision making. Um, And also, quite frankly, Juncker isn't terribly respected at the moment. Um, his reputation, particularly with uh, the opposition parties in, in the European Parliament, socialists and the lib- liberals and so on, is at an all time low. So um, I, I, I'm not sure how much effect his uh, State of the Union speech will actually have.
1: It's interesting that you say you know his reputation is low with the sort of left-leaning parties in the European Parliament because, uh, particularly with regard to the refugee crisis here, it's often his face which has appeared on placards of people who are you know campaigning against accepting refugees. So he seems to be more of a target for the right here. Mm-hmm. Um, that gives the you know suggests that maybe the priorities in Latvia are different to the priorities in the rest of Europe. I mean, it doesn't feel as if there is an existential crisis, which is what he says is happening, when you're looking at it from the Latvian perspective, I get the impression that Latvians feel, well, the EU's there. You know, it took us a long time and a lot of effort to join it. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, we rely on certain uh, inflows of cash, but we expect that our economy is going to grow. We're going to converge, and it's all kind of almost predestined that this is what will happen. Whereas, if on the other on the other side, from you know the centre of Europe, they're saying, well, the whole thing is up for grabs. Is there not a little bit of a disconnect there yeah i mean
0: i agree with you i mean i I think that uh, in latvia and equally in estonia and lithuania we have a relatively sort of positive and simple view of the european union Uh, we see it first of all as an identity issue that membership of the eu places us firmly in the uh, club of european democracies and that means that we we sort of build an even firmer border with uh the east and the second thing of course is a source of prosperity Uh, Now, in this sense, we don't necessarily see the single market as a term of prosperity, although um, certainly our businesses do, especially those businesses uh, which which, which trade quite heavily with the European uh, Union countries, of which we have many, by the way, uh, much more than we we commonly assume. but amongst the public, it's more about European funds. So it's more about German industrialists uh, redirecting funds to uh, fix our roads, uh, rebuild our infrastructure, perhaps even build a fastish train service uh, from uh, Tallinn through the Baltic states uh, leading off to Berlin and so on. So it's more about cash infusions. But when it comes to the, uh, the, the big discussions um, uh, in Europe, uh, we tend to only react to those which are of a more cultural dimension so such as the refugee crisis which seems to challenge in a sense latvian and european identity and then we have a ferocious debate about this but equally important are the initiatives uh, dealing with things like the single market like you know the sing- like the single digital market which is a priority
1: Well, very much for being driven by Estonia, it seems, uh, the last year or so. But of course, it was also a priority for the Latvian
0: presidency and and the Lithuanian one before that. In fact, it's a priority for everybody um, at the moment. Um, uh, But when it comes to to, to the discussion of these kind of issues, we seem to be a little bit on the fringes, which is maybe connected to the fact that we have very weak um, uh, policy making um, abilities within our state institutions. I mean, this has been somewhat of a hobby horse for me in recent years, but, uh, you know, it needs reiterating. I mean, it's quite stunning that our parliament uh, doesn't employ a single researcher, not a single researcher. There are lawyers who look, obviously, who, who look through the legal projects and so on to make sure they match up with the uh, demands of European Union membership and our... Um, Uh, constitution and so on but these aren't researchers providing core research to help um, parliamentarians with uh, their decision-making and I think this largely also explains why we're on the uh, periphery in these kind of issues because European Union is a complicated thing Um, scholars for example tend to uh, focus on specific areas because there's no way they can uh, understand the full complexity of the European Union and that's certainly also true for Latin parliamentarians they need help and uh, and uh, they certainly need some research uh,
1: backup. It's probably worth mentioning at this juncture that only this week, President uh, Raymond Sveon has actually issued a fairly extraordinary statement uh, directed at the CIMA, basically telling them that they're not drafting laws in a professional enough manner, rather the, the three readings of each law, which are the, you know, the standard model for, for, for drafting legislation, uh, most of the discussion is supposed to happen in the first two rounds mm-hmm. of discussions and it's only minor adjustments or linguistic differences and sort of points of law which are changed at the third uh, drafting stage and what we has tended to happen is a, a little bit of a flip-flop in that lots of things are being crowbarred in at the end Uh, which haven't really been discussed a great deal. And the president has exercised his constitutional right to remind Saima that this isn't the way that the constitution says things should happen. So perhaps that, again, is some sort of evidence that these researchers would be needed to make sure that the work is done up front rather than at the last minute when maybe a law, it's realised that a law is going to be unpopular or has a problem. And so last minute changes are made. Absolutely, and, and this is an issue that's actually been discussed for maybe the last three or four years. The
0: previous president, Berzing, also addressed this a number of times, and he also had a, uh, a high-level uh, discussion uh, organized um, uh, within uh, the, uh, the House of the Blackheads, where he was based at the time, dealing with these specific issues. So the presidency is aware of it. Large parts of the uh, legislature, the sima are also aware of it. The problem is finding the uh, money for it, um, because uh, many parliamentarians have said that they understand the need for it, but it would certainly help them in their work. But it would be difficult to explain why they have this extra budget point to the, to the sort of general public, um, who seem to believe that parliamentarians should be able to make decisions on their own without any backup. But when those decisions are of are questionable quality, then they say, oh, these guys are idiots. You know, What are they doing? Um, I mean, basically, I think we just need to have the, the parliament understand that this is something important that this is something that pretty much every other parliament in the European Union has. And certainly Lithuania and Estonia have these uh, research departments and we just need to create it. The current plan they have is to have two people in a sort of research department which will maybe be have a budget and then they can sort of on an ad hoc basis uh, employ researchers uh, to uh, look at these various different issues. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's really a very good way of doing it. Um, you rely on being able to find good quality researchers who are free at a certain time. In Latvia, there aren't that many good quality researchers who are, let's say, independents. Most of most, uh, the researchers in the University of Latvia and think tanks are already involved in long-term projects. Um, you know, they can't just find the time to work, you know, for 50 hours on some specific thing. Rather, the parliament should uh, open up a research department, um, hire some uh, full-time researchers from num- from a number of different disciplines, social sciences, humanities, the hard sciences, STEM, um, and start building up its capacity. In the long term, it will pay off.
1: And if we might just quickly return to European issues, we had the Latvian EU presidency during the first half of last year, which was generally regarded to being quite a success. I mean, certainly, uh, I was quite impressed with the way it it operated. Oh, good sandwiches at the break. There was an excellent cheese cabinet. That was the real uh, star of the uh, uh, of the press room. Um, Sadly, the company which was supplying the cheese subsequently filed for liquidation, and I like to think that that wasn't due to the huge amounts of cheese that the journalists were eating. But but it could have been. Well, it could have been. Uh, I never smuggled any into my bag and took them home with me. I want to make that absolutely clear. Um, But the Eastern Partnership Summit was sort of the crowning moment or was intended to be the crowning moment of the Latvian EU presidency. Now, it was regarded at the time as a little bit disappointing, a bit of a sort of damp squib. I remember there was a sort of 30-page communique issued, which didn't really have a lot of substance in it. But since then, Latvia has been very insistent on banging the drum for the Eastern Partnership Initiative and for the the principle of enlargement, particularly with regard to uh, Ukraine, Moldova, these countries which have expressed very clear interests in joining the European Union one day. And yet in President Juncker's speech today and elsewhere in the discourse recently, it seems there's more of a drawing in that countries aren't really willing to consider new members particularly in you know troubled regions of of Europe do you think that latvia is pursuing the right path in continuing to talk about the eastern partnership or is this something which really is effectively gone well if we talk about membership
0: then i mean if it was ever there it's gone and i doubt that it was ever there i don't think there has ever been any great interest amongst the uh, west european states in having Georgia or Ukraine as full European Union members, uh, I mean Juncker has said that there's a moratorium on new members at the moment that uh, under his uh, the terms of his this, at least the first presidency uh, but 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 he has this five-year presidency, there won't be any new countries joining um, uh, even though some countries uh, in the Balkan uh, region like uh, you know Montenegro, for example, have been working quite ferociously at trying to fulfill the uh, acquis and join. now if those countries which are Uh, in many cases already have borders with the european union and certainly firmly uh, fall into the territory which we would understand as as europe Um, if those countries are for at least the time being being kept out of the club then certainly countries uh, such as ukraine and georgia um, which are seen as you know at best at being at the periphery of europe then they stand you know little chance um, of membership i mean i would be surprised if um either of them were to join Uh, the European Union before Turkey, for example. I mean, and and Turkey has been standing in line for a good half century now, um, and they're really no closer now than they were uh, then. So, uh, uh, but but whether Latvia should continue talking about this, I mean, I think yes, because uh, uh, Latvia just wants to make sure that uh, the issue of these uh, post-Soviet states uh, on the uh, periphery of Russia uh, that they're kept on the European agenda, that we don't forget about them, that we understand that they do have European aspirations, that they are moving towards, you know, strengthening their democracies and so on. And this, of course, is something that Latvia very much favors because these are countries which are you know, geographically closer to Latvia than they are to the West European states. And in this sense, it maybe helps that uh, the Estonians uh, have moved up their presidency by six months. And of course, as we already said, I mean, we know the Estonians are going to be banging on about um, e-democracy in a digital market and so on and about how wonderful their uh, tax uh, uh, system is. By the way, have you seen that the Latvian tax authority has a new website now?
1: I haven't seen that, no. Yeah,
0: they apparently upgraded their website uh, this week. or uh, so one of my colleagues told me, I, I haven't had a chance to look yet. We'll have to see whether it's better than the Estonian one. But anyway, the Estonians also, of course, will, will be bringing this onto the agenda, perhaps not with the same enthusiasm that Lithuania and Latvia, but certainly they will make sure that during their presidency, we haven't forgotten about Ukraine and we haven't forgotten about uh, Georgia and these other post-Soviet states.
1: Well, having wandered all the way from Riga to Turkey, I think that would be a good place at which to stop the first half of the podcast. And we'll come back in a moment with the discussion of higher education.
0: Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier.
1: So we're back with uh, Minutes from Latvia and my guest. Uh, Downis Hours is here, and we're going to spend the second half of the program talking about higher education. Could you just outline your background in higher education, specifically in Latvia, and you know, where you think things are heading? Sure.
0: Well, uh, Mike, I started working in a higher education sphere in Latvia in uh, 1993. And I spent a dozen years working for an uh, international organization called Eurofaculty, which was set up by the Council of Baltic Sea States, Germany, Nordic countries, uh, and uh, so on, um, and was charged with... Um, sort of reform of the social sciences uh, in the national universities of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And I initially worked there as an English language trainer, then a coordinator, then eventually, um, after I had uh, finished up my uh, master's and PhD, uh, becoming a lecturer. And uh, since then, I've been a uh, associate uh, professor um, at the University of uh, Latvia. Um, and most recently, a Jean Monnet uh,
1: professor of uh, European integration as well. Uh,
0: so that's my background
1: and in the well it's good that you've had uh, quite a few years of experience here how have things changed over you know the years since 1993 uh, i'm thinking that recently we've had r- ratings of uh, regional universities and in, mm-hmm. in fact european and worldwide universities and the university of latvia which is regarded as the you know the primary academic institution in the country really has risen through the ratings quite spectacularly, up 50 places or so this year, and yet we're still only in the top hundreds rather than the top dozens of institutions. Um, Is it too much to expect that one day we'll be in the top 100? Yes. Um, Yeah, the University of Latvia will never
0: be one of the top 100 universities um, in the world. If you look at the, uh, the top couple of hundred universities, there's a very clear correlation between money and uh, quality, because money buys you uh, facilities, Uh, it buys you uh, top-ranking academic staff, Um, it buys you uh, co-financing into research projects and and, uh, also uh, technical assistance for researchers and all these other things which are needed for universities to compete. Um, as a result, Latvia can, the, the University of Latvia and other Latvian universities can certainly rise up the rankings, but I think we have to realize that there is a limit. I mean, we're unlikely to break into that top 100, which is absolutely dominated by American universities, British universities, other West European universities, and recently some universities in uh, China that have received extraordinary amounts of uh, financing from the government. So, in a sense, we're almost overperforming, bearing in mind the extremely limited finances available to higher education in Latvia.
1: So, again, is it a case of looking for the niches or the priorities? I think the Stradinj University, for instance, has made a real uh, play of targeting foreign students to come and study, and they seem to be having some success there. Is that something that Latvia can develop? Yes. I mean, I I, I think um, that uh,
0: the future... Uh, lies with uh, the increasing internationalization of the Latvian higher education system. I mean, we've seen a, an extremely dramatic fall in student numbers over the last 10 years. Uh, at the moment, we have, uh, for every three students we had uh, about uh, 10 years ago, now we have two. Um, but so is that because of falling population,
1: or is it because students are choosing to go abroad to study?
0: Both. Both. Um, one thing is the uh, accession to the European Union, of course, meant uh, access to the higher education uh, space in the European Union, and many of the more ambitious and uh, the most talented students are trying to get into these you know, top 100, top 200 universities and doing it quite successfully. Um, And of course, I mean, if you have the possibility to study at Oxford or Cambridge, then of course you're going to take it rather than uh, studying at a university um, in Latvia. So there are some students who are taking this opportunity to study elsewhere. And the second thing is the demographic decline. I mean, absolutely. uh, We knew three or four years ago that we would have a significant dip uh, coming up in student numbers and that that dip would be there for a long, long time. Um, And unfortunately, we're just living with the result of that. Now, you mentioned Stradings. I mean, Stradings University has been uh, very successful at uh, at least partially um, filling this this fall in student numbers with international students. Mm -hmm. Most of their students are from uh, Germany and from the Nordic countries, uh, studying medicine and dentistry and, and so on, paying very high student fees and bringing in millions of uh, euros uh, into the budget of uh, Riga Strading's University. But it's not just Strading's. Uh, The technical university of Riga is also increasingly successful at attracting students. Uh, The University of Latvia is also becoming more competitive, private universities. Um, And at the moment, or rather in the last academic year, we had 5,500 fee-paying uh, full-time students in Latvia, these are ones studying to get a degree. This, the, the, this doesn't count Erasmus students who are here mm-hmm. to enjoy the, uh, the, the good life uh, <laughs> in, 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 in Riga. I believe you have
1: quite a few Erasmus students under you, don't I you? do, and
0: they're lovely. Every single one of them, bless, bless, bless their little, uh, little German, for the most part, hearts. Although I do have a group of French students uh, this year as well, which is rather nice because I'm teaching a course on the EU where, where I tend to make quite a lot of jokes about France.
1: So and it's nice presumably to this is teaching in English.
0: Yes, Absolutely.
1: There's sometimes uh, you talk to people about any aspect of the education system in Latvia. And we know that at the moment, we do have teachers who are uh, unhappy with their and conditions. Uh, we have plans to reorganize schools, which involves closing down a fair number of rural schools and so on. But something that often comes up is oh, there's still this post-Soviet mentality or that some of the teaching methods are out of date or that people have been doing things the same way for so many years that we can't hope to get them to change until they've all died off. I mean, is this just a myth or is there something in that, that there is a very high bound uh, way of doing education in Latvia?
0: Well, there's certainly some truth to it. Um if we look at the average age of teachers um, in Latvia, we can see that there's a very large uh, cadre of teachers which received their education and spent their first professional years teaching in the Soviet system. So that's the basis for what they know. And of course, you know, you can go through various upgrading courses and so on, and so on. But this is still the sort of the basis of your teaching knowledge. But at the same time, you have extremely dynamic, new, young, motivated teachers. Uh, my, my son, who is in. Uh, sixth grade um, at the moment. Um, he has a fantastic maths teacher who also taught him last year, who, who uh, does, teaches these complicated uh, maths uh, uh, issues around uh, po- Pokemon was the most recent thing he was working on last last year. Previously, he's used angry birds and these other things. I mean, he's fantastic at relating to the kids and actually getting them interested in uh, math. Uh, so, I mean, there's a great deal of diversity in the quality of teaching across uh, Latvia. But one thing we have to understand, it's, again, it's a money issue. Um, the average salary for teachers is rather low, which means that it's quite difficult to attract young people unless they have a sort of a sense of you know, teaching as a mission. If they don't have that sort of thing, it's quite difficult to uh, persuade them to go into teaching because salaries are quite flat, uh, they're quite low, and they're also quite flat, by which I mean that um, as you progress and you become more senior, you don't necessarily see a big rise in your uh, mm-hmm. income. So, of course, I mean, people, if if, if they have received some kind of competitive education, they have the opportunity to go work in some other sector where uh, they have a potential to earn more money, they're going to do it. And it doesn't help that we stretch the money across a great number of schools. You mentioned, for example, these uh, rural schools. And this is a sort of a a real dilemma for politicians because in one sense, the rural schools are extremely expensive to maintain for very small numbers of students. And of course, it drains resources from the general education system. But then again, Latvia is a rural country. Um, some of these kids, they have to uh, travel you know, tremendous distances if they were to go to a school in the closest town or city. And you know, we have to think about the human dimension here. It's a hard decision to make. And I'm pleased I'm not the education minister that has to make it.
1: Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, I can speak from personal experience in that my own kids attend one of these rural schools, and it's a great school. And the great thing is that they get, you know, personal attention that they wouldn't get. For instance, in the UK, when I visited uh, relatives there recently, we went to their school and my kids were absolutely shocked by how many people were in a class. You know, this was almost as many people as was in like half of their school. And it really brought home to me the fact that, well, you can get individual attention to the kids in these schools, which are, well, they may drain resources, but they're not big spending schools, that's, that's for sure. But what do you see the future you know a a workable future model for latvian education because for many years i mean even since before the economic crisis there's been talk about structural reforms that we need to initiate really serious changes in Mm -hmm. education and yet it seems to me it's been a case of tinkering again rather than any sort of bold clear decisions as to where we're headed Well, uh, there have been a few, I would say, bold
0: decisions, Uh, and one of them uh, relates to professional schools. So over the last half decade or so, we've basically seen the network of professional schools in Latvia consolidated, Um, the schools have been rebuilt, um, and they are fantastic. If you uh, visit some of these places, and they're all across Latvia, they're really very, very very well equipped. There's one in Rezek now I've visited, and that was very impressive. Yeah, um, but the challenge that the professional schools have found is attracting Uh, students uh, to study there, because they're seen as sort of low prestige, um, as a sort of place, you know, if you don't make it into university, then you sort of go study there. Um, And that isn't perhaps the way we should go ahead. I mean, we should realize um, that uh, we need uh, people in this professional education as much as we need people in higher education. And moreover, if we're looking at the development of Latvia in the future, it's quite clear that Latvia will develop in a similar way to, um, let's say, Denmark in that um, most things, most, let's say, high-value-added professions will cluster around Riga. That's very clear. And as a result, most higher education institutions should cluster around Riga. And I personally, I would question whether we really need to have a university in Rezekne, whether we need to have one in Liepāja. Professional schools, absolutely, but do we need to have higher education institutions there? I mean, the value added is in having them in Riga. I mean, Riga is actually a fantastic place uh, for students to study, whether from the countryside or, or international students. So, and also most of the jobs which will be created in rural areas in Latvia will be these sort of professional jobs. I mean, hopefully we can attract investors to build various manufacturing facilities, maybe call centers and so on in the regions. But it's not like we're going to have some, you know, high value added IT cluster opening up in Ludza uh, next year. Um, I mean, it would be difficult for Valmiera or Cersis, quite frankly, to attract these kind of uh, businesses, uh, no matter for these smaller Latvian cities. So I think there needs to be some some kind of, you know, strategy of seeing that Latvia is, uh, that, sorry, that Riga is a place for high value added business, which is not an easy decision to make because, of course, it means, you know, I mean, rural or well, let's say the smaller towns and cities in Latvia still like to think they could attract these kind of businesses, but it's just you know, quite unlikely. I mean, just as in Denmark, um, these these kind of businesses tend to cluster in Copenhagen. The same will happen in, in in Latvia.
1: And if we might finish with a subject which is close to all academics' hearts, publishing. Uh, you published a book uh, last year. Was it last year? Or yes. The year before. Last year, which basically gives. A good oversight of the political systems in all three Baltic states, as it as it was, which was quite a gaping gap in the market. Uh, was it easy to get the book published? Um. Yes.
0: Surprisingly enough, I I had thought it would be uh, much more challenging. I uh, uh, the first um, publisher I. Uh, spoke to um, instantly, uh, snapped it up, uh, Polgrave uh, Macmillan. And I was sort of expecting to sort of, you know, st- start at the top and work my way down to, you know, ending up with some sort of, you know, lowly publisher in Ireland or something. So actually, I mean, because there was a genuine uh, gap in the market, it was actually quite uh, easy to get that uh, deal.
1: Well, Downis, thank you very much for joining me today for this uh, first podcast. Um... We'll let you know how it goes when it is uh, disseminated through the ether. And hope to see you again if this thing carries on in the future. Well, splendid, Mike. Um, I very much enjoyed myself and uh,
0: good luck with the podcast. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Produced by Renārs Steimans for Latvian Public Media. Find out more at
1: www.lsm.lv.